classes do start one day. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I, have you ever had that moment when uh, you're getting ready to go on a trip and you're so excited that even though you woke up in the morning earlier than you're used to waking up, there's still like this sense of excitement because you know you're about to leave on the trip. You know what I'm talking about? So I want you to look at somebody and say, good morning, we're starting a journey today. Just tell them, tell somebody, we're, we're starting a journey. Yeah. Woo, that's right, that's right. So you may or may not feel that yet, but it's coming. It's going to be exciting. We are starting um, in the book of Exodus. So if you want to grab your Bibles and go to Exodus chapter 1, we're starting a series this morning called Building the People of God, and we're going to be on this journey for about a year. Some of you thought I was joking. I'm telling the truth. It's going to be about a year. It's going to be a long journey, but it's going to be really fun. It's really, really exciting. Seriously, I'm so pumped about this series because... There's so much in the book of Exodus. There's so much that's there. If you look at the map, that shows you the way we're going to go. So yeah, get ready. We're going to go all over the place. It's going to be really a good time. So um, in order to start such an epic journey, I thought it was appropriate for us to start it in epic fashion. And so I think the best way to start a journey like this is with something called carpool karaoke. So check out the screens. No, a few cherished. Is it not? <laughs> Fine, man. You no, go. what is it? A few, a few cherished. Little bells are ringing. <laughs> yeah, let's go. No, what is it though? Doesn't matter. No, it does. What but is it? That's music. Oh no, I hear Jerusalem bells are ringing. Yeah, that, that's that's, that's what lyric. I sing. That's what you sing. <laughs> <laughs> you can sing whatever you like. I hear Jerusalem bells are ringing. Roman cavalry choirs are singing. things I love about York Alliance is um, that what you just saw is a picture of the generational gap because a bunch of you were like, I have no idea what's going on right now. And some of you are like, yes, I love carpool karaoke. So um, if, if you don't know what's going on, let me catch you up. Um, the guy in the driver's seat is a guy named James Corden. James uh, is the host of a late night show, and he does this bit called Carpool Karaoke, where he throws people in the car with him and they sing songs. Some of you have seen that bit before. You know what's going on. The guy who was in the passenger seat is a guy named Chris Martin, not our Chris Martin, a different Chris Martin. Uh, so um, actually, believe it or not, the more famous of the two. I know you think that our Chris Martin is the more famous, but this is the more famous of the two. He uh, leads a little band called Coldplay. You probably, maybe most of you have never heard of it, but it's okay. No big deal. Um, and, and that song, Viva La Vida, is probably on most people's top 10 list as some of the, one of the best songs written in the 21st century. Now, what's fascinating about that song and what's fascinating about what you just saw is Chris Martin, sitting in the passenger seat, the writer of that song, one of the best songs of the 21st century, is singing along, and James Corden sings a line, 
and it's the wrong line. He thinks it's a few cherished little bells. That's my best Cockney. That's the best I can do. Um, they're, they're both British, by the way. I don't know if you picked that up, but they're, they're famous in America. That's okay. Um, so he, he thinks it's a few cherished little bells, and Chris Martin says, whatever you want, man. It doesn't matter what the words are. Just sing what you want. It's, it's, just, it's about the music, man. It doesn't matter. Like, just sing, sing whatever you want. He said, no, 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 I want to know what the lyrics are. He says, uh, he says is, it, uh, is it about Jerusalem bells? And he says, well, I mean, that's what I sing. But you sing whatever you want, right? I, I think it's fascinating because here's this song that is incredibly co- complex in its lyrical content, beautifully put together, layered in so many different ways. And here's the writer who says, it doesn't matter what the words are. Like, just sing whatever you want. It's all about the music, man. Do the words matter? Doesn't make a difference. Because we live in a world where Chris Martin's perspective on the world is the predominant thought in the world around us. It doesn't really matter what the words are. You create your own truth. You, you figure it out. Uh, postmodern philosophers diverge in lots of different ways. I know a lot of you sit around and read postmodern philosophy, so I'm just gonna, I, I'll just catch up the rest of you up. You know, it's fine. Um, postmodern philosophers diverge on a lot of different points, but the one point that unifies postmodern philosophers is they agree about what they call the rejection of the meta narrative. Now, that's philosopher talk, but let me explain what that means. Um, the meta narrative, the idea of a meta narrative, is a singular story that ties together all of humanity. From every time, every place, every people, all tied together with a singular story. And postmodernism has said, that's not true. There is no story big enough, there is no story grand enough to tie us all together. Postmodern philosophy has effectively said, the words don't matter, man. Just sing to the music. Because whatever your era is, whatever your truth is, whatever your emotion is at the moment, that's what's really important. Is that true? The argument that I want to make this morning and for roughly the next year is that there indeed is a grand story, a singular story, and that you and I are a part of it. What I want to try to show you through the scriptures over the next year is that this is your story. And it's your story whether you're here this morning and you're passionately following Jesus and you see yourself right in the middle of it. If you're here this morning, you're not even sure if you believe all this stuff or you're here this morning, you've outright rejected it. It's still your story. And God has a place for you in the middle of it. How many of you, just by raise of hands, have uh, been a part of a Seder meal before? Have you done that before? Oh man, lots of you. Cool, very cool. Um, We're going to actually be doing a corporate Seder meal this spring, right around Easter time. So if you want to be a part of that, we're going to have a time to be able to uh, celebrate that all together. And the Seder meal, there's, uh, there's a lot of different variations of the Seder, but the Seder is an ordered dinner that expresses the story of the Passover, what we're going to be talking about here in a couple months, and expresses it Uh, through a structure, and that structure is handed down over generations, and it's slightly different house to house and place to place, but there's a a bunch of commonality. One of the commonalities is that the youngest person in the room asks the four questions. So there are four questions that are consistently asked at every Seder meal. So the, the questions are around the idea of why is tonight so special, and the youngest person in the room will stand up or sitting down ask these questions. Question number one, Why on all other nights do we eat bread with leaven, but on this night we eat only unleavened bread? Why is that? Question number one. 
Question number two. Why on all other nights do we eat all kinds of herbs, but on this night we eat bitter herbs? Question number three. Why on all other nights do we not dip herbs at all, but on this night we dip them twice into salt water? If you've ever done that, there's two dips that happen. And fourth, why on all other nights do we eat in the normal way, but on this night we eat with special ceremony? So the question is asked, why, why do we do this effectively? Through these four questions, tell us why we engage this. And if you've ever done a Seder meal, you have together with the entire group recited something like this. Once we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord in his goodness and mercy brought us out of this land with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Had God not rescued us from the hand of that destroyer, surely we and our children would still be enslaved, deprived of freedom and human dignity. You would have said that together. Now, you probably just said it. You probably just read it when you practiced the Seder. But did you ever stop and think, I've never been slave in Egypt. I've never even been to Egypt. Like, what am I saying? Like, we're saying we were slaves in Egypt. How do we say that? Because this story is our story. Because as we enter into the truth of the way this story unfolds, we find ourselves in the middle of the story. And so as we go through the book of Exodus, we're going to start pretty slow at the beginning, a, a little bit at a time. And we're going to do that on purpose because if we rush to uh, Moses demanding that Pharaoh lets the people go, if we rush to Charlton Heston splitting the Red Sea, I mean Moses splitting the Red Sea, Charlton Heston in your mind, but Moses in actuality, whatever. Um, if we rush to there, we, we miss the idea of, of what we have been delivered from. We miss the idea of where we fit in the story. And so this morning, I want you to begin now and over the next several weeks, listen for your part in the story of Exodus. I'm going to ask Amanda to come and read for us uh, in Exodus chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Listen to the word of God and place yourself in the story. Exodus 1, 1 to 14. <clears throat> These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly <clears throat> made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
don't know about you, but I love all of our scripture readers. That one's my favorite. (laughs) Would you uh, pray with me as we engage the word? Jesus, I pray that you would speak through your word to us. It's a story from thousands of years ago, and yet it's our story today. And so God, would you open our eyes to that truth? Help us to see where we fit. Help us to see that the words indeed do matter and that this story is our story. And so God, with all of the details that are swirling in my mind, would you help your truth to land on our hearts, that my words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but that your words, spoken by your spirit, would penetrate our hearts. God, for many of us, we are longing to see how all of the craziness of the world around us comes to order in you. And so, God, would you show us what you're doing? Even though we can't see all of it, would you give us faith to see, eyes to see, what it is that you're doing in us and in the world around us? And so speak, Lord. Your servants are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is uh, begin this journey. This, uh, picture this as kind of the, the first hour out of town until you're kind of working your way on the road across the country or wherever it is that you're going. Uh, what I want to look at is where this little bit at the beginning of, of Exodus, where it fits into the broader story. Um, what's happening right here in the middle of this? What, what, what this is saying and what we need to do with it. And then ultimately what God's going to do. Because this ends at a pretty rough spot. What's God going to do? And so we're going to look at what God's doing in these first 14 verses and the themes of what God is going to be doing in the book as we uh, journey through the book of Exodus. So uh, where this fits, what this is, and what God does. Um, If you have an ESV translation, which is uh, what we're typically reading out of, uh, the the first word in verse 1 of Exodus 1 is these. These are the names of the sons of Israel. That's actually dropping a Hebrew term. So there's a a, a conjunction in Hebrew at the beginning of verse 1. It's a very odd thing. So if you have a really literal translation, it might say now. uh, Or a very literal translation would say and, which is an odd way to start a book, right? And here's another thing. You know, like if you started your book with and, your English teacher would be pretty upset with you. Like you're not supposed to do that, right? But what's fascinating here is that this is a book but it is also a volume in a five-volume epic. The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Can you say that, Pentateuch? Yeah, there should be some spitting happening there. So if you didn't spit, you didn't say it quite right. But yeah, Pentateuch, right. So the, the first five books of the Bible are the Pentateuch, and they all flow together. In fact, um, the second, third, and fourth book all start with a conjunction. They're all tied together, and then the fifth book, Deuteronomy, is a restating, and it starts the story over again. But the uh, first book begins, and then the next three books are seen as a continuation, one after another. And so in, in order to get our heads all the way around that, um, we'll, we'll get something, like any great epic story, we'll get something out of Exodus by itself. But if we can see where it's coming from through the book of Genesis, there's going to be other stuff that we're going to see. It's kind of like, there's this thing, some of you know about it, it's called, I, I think it's called the Marvel Universe. Are you aware of this, this thing? I don't fully understand it. My kids are really fired up about it. I guess there's a whole bunch of movies that has to do with it. Um, 
And there's this thing that happens. I'll walk into the room, and some Marvel movie will be on the screen, and um, it'll be like, I don't know, I watch it for like 10 or 15 minutes, which is about all I can handle of any of that stuff. Um, so I watch for a little bit. And, and I see things happening. I kind of follow the little bit of the story. But when you know, somebody shows up, my kids will be like, ooh. And to me, this just looks like a ripped guy with makeup. Like, I don't understand. Like, I, I don't, it doesn't make any sense. But they're, they're tying it back to something that they saw, you know, three or four movies ago. And they're like, ooh, they're connecting the dots, right? They're able to see things. I, I don't see any of that stuff because I'm seeing one little bit, which is Exodus, within this larger narrative, the Pentateuch. And so uh, what I want to do is start with going back to just some of the highlights. We're going to do like a quick survey of Genesis to set the stage for Exodus. So um, if you want to turn, you can. We're going to move pretty quick, so you can just listen as I read. In Genesis chapter 1, as God creates all that is, he creates men and women, and he gives them a specific command. It's actually the very first command in the Bible. So I'll read for you starting in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, now here's the first command in the Bible, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's command to Adam and Eve as a co image bearers, and therefore, uh, bearing the image of God, co-rulers in his place over creation. So he has placed his image in them, and even though he's in charge of creation, he's asking them to rule creation. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and in that process of subduing the earth, you're to create culture, take this disorder and order it, structure it, in line with my heart and my vision. So, As my image bearers step into a building project that is going to form all of this rough, raw material into culture. That's what God's called Adam and Eve to do. Now, if you're familiar with the story, by the time we get to Genesis 3, the serpent shows up, Eve is tempted, and then Adam is tempted, and as they fall away in sin, God shows up and he speaks simply the truth of what has happened, the cursing of the fall over them. And when you read through that, we're not going to take time to go through all of it today. When you read through that, what's happening is God is pronouncing what is systemic judgment, a system of brokenness that has settled on creation. So basically what he's saying is the the relationship you have with one another, that's going to be broken. You're going to fight that for the rest of time. The relationship you have with this earth that I've asked you to subdue, you're going to fight against that. That's going to be a problem for you. And the relationship that you have with me is going to have sharp edges in it. It's going to be difficult for you to relate well to me. There's going to be this brokenness, this system that is going to fall over all of creation. And if you read through Genesis 4, 5, 6, all the way through 11, you see the cycle unfold. Like every time there's a little bit of blessing, there's all this cursing that flows into it. It's just like the world gets worse and worse and worse. So you get to a place where Noah uh, goes in the ark and all of the earth is judged. We're going to talk about that word in just a minute. Um, All of the earth is judged and Noah comes out of the ark into the new creation, God recreating so he can start again with his system. You remember what happens when Noah comes out of the ark? He immediately gets drunk. Like, it's bad news. Like, he's just, he, it's, it, the brokenness is so deeply enmeshed in the system that blessing doesn't show up without cursing. So in Genesis chapter 12, God says to a man named Abram, we're going to start this again. I'm going to call you, 
and you are going to be my vessel where I am going to bless your family, which is going to multiply, be fruitful and multiply, and I'm going to bless you so greatly that the blessing is going to flow through you to the world, fill the earth and subdue it. I'm going to do this process through you. So if you go to Genesis chapter 18, Abram now is Abraham, Sarai is now Sarah, but they still are without children. So filling the earth, you know, being fruitful and multiplying, not working well for Abraham and Sarah. God shows up in Genesis 18, and the pronouncement in Genesis 18 is centered around the promised child that's coming. Isaac is going to be born, and the beginning of this family being fruitful and multiply is about to unfold. But God makes a fascinating statement about his choice of Abraham. Look down at verse 19. This is God speaking about Abraham. He says this, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Those two concepts. So what he's saying is, Abraham and his family, all that's coming after him, they have two charges now. They're to enact righteousness. They're to do righteous things, to do what's right. And they are to bring about justice. That word is the first time that word shows up in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word mishpat. Can you say mishpat? That's close. I'm not really a Hebrew scholar, so we're going to go with that. Um, it's the first time that word shows up. And what's fascinating is that word mishpat can be, uh, it can be translated judgment and justice, same word. We think of God's judgment. We, when we hear God is judging things, we think of an angry guy up in heaven with lightning bolts. He's like throwing lightning bolts down, right? That's judgment. Uh, by the way, that's uh, Greek mythology. That's Zeus. It has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. But that's what's in our head. That's what shows up. That's judgment. But, but what the Hebrew concept of just, judgment is, is that judgment happens because of injustice, and judgment brings about justice. So those two terms are intertwined with one another. Judgment comes in order that justice would happen, and it happens through enacting righteousness, doing righteous things. So God says, Abraham, I've called this man so that he would lead his family in righteous acts that bring about justice through judgment in the world. Now, if you have read from Genesis chapter 18 through Genesis 50, you will find that no matter how messed up your family is, Abraham's family is way worse. Like, they are a train wreck. Like, they, uh, I, I used to say that they were like daytime soap opera television. They wouldn't put this on network TV. This is like pay-per-view. Like, you can't get this on any normal channel. Like, this is, this is bad news. Like, it's really, really, it's, it's rough. There is no righteousness. There is no justice. In fact, uh, if you know the story, they're in Egypt in Exodus chapter 1 because Joseph is sent to Egypt through an act of loving righteousness from his brothers, right? You remember that? No, no. His brothers first want to kill him, and they're like, oh, we shouldn't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. That's a good idea, right? Oh, having mercy, right? And so they send him off to Egypt, and then ultimately, God uses this thing that was meant for evil for good. That's the way that the book of Genesis wraps up to remind us that God is still working. The family of Abraham has moved to Egypt. And Exodus chapter 1 opens by telling us, here, here are the people who, with Joseph, moved to Egypt. 
There were 70 of them. And so this story begins to unfold that there is this family that's there. And in verse 7, if you, now, if you're just reading Exodus, this is just reading in the narrative. But if you understand Genesis, you should have a, kind of a, a, a flag in your head. Listen to verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So the discerning reader of the Pentateuch reads that in verse 7 and says, ooh, wait, God's up to something. Because they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. They failed to do what they were supposed to do. But now in Egypt, God's at work. God clearly must be on the move because they are being fruitful and they're multiplying. This language from Genesis seems to be unfolding in front of us. But if you remember the command from Genesis, it's be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So if you read on to verse 8, it says this, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. If you were watching this as a movie, this would be where the minor chords come in. Dun, 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 right? The, the, the bad guy just showed up. So this is uh, the, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt, who is not operating as an image bearer of God in order to, uh, to build human flourishing, but rather he is part of this system of oppression that Genesis 3 proclaimed over all the earth. The Israelites are now oppressed. They're multiplying, they're growing, they're being fruitful, but it's actually because of their numbers, uh, because of the blessing that they're being cursed. Listen to Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God. The Israelites in Egypt were an immigrant ethnic minority people. Exodus 1 portrays how vulnerable they were to being made the target of irrational fear, political cunning, and unjust discrimination. They had no political freedom or voice within the Egyptian state, even though they had grown in numbers. In fact, their numerical growth is cited as one of the major reasons for Egyptian hostility. This is a story with modern echoes. Now, it's fascinating because this book, The Mission of God, uh, Wright's book, was written well over a decade ago, and yet those echoes reverberate. They reverberate in our world in a macro sense, so we see that in the world around us, but they also reverberate in a micro sense. One of the distinctives of the book of Exodus is that Pharaoh is never named beyond his title. Pharaoh is not a name, that's a title. It would be like saying king. They just say Pharaoh, but they never name him. So it would be like saying king said this and king did this, but they don't say the name of the king. King who? Pharaoh who? It's not listed. And theologians have all kinds of reasons for that, but one of the predominant interpretations is that Pharaoh's not named because every generation has a Pharaoh. And every one of us has a Pharaoh. There's an internal Pharaoh in each one of us. Anytime insecurity and fear well up to oppress, whether that's inside of us or outside of us, Pharaoh shows up. The writers of the book Echoes of Exodus say it this way, this way. Our, ger our generation is confused as to the nature of true freedom. No matter how often we experience liberation from constraints, limitations, and oppression, we still find ourselves falling into new forms of bondage. We get free from boredom, and we fall into slavery to distraction. 
We pursue liberty from prohibitions and we fall into bondage to addictions. We escape repression and become enslaved to lust. We are released from isolation and fall captive to peer pressure and the power of the online mob. We pursue liberty from the constraints of our natures and fall into bondage to our untrained passions. True freedom is more complicated than it looks. What they're saying, and I think we can experientially understand, is that um, when we're freed in one area, we tend to swing all the way to the other pole to be captured by, dominated by, oppressed by the other area. We, we go from one kind of oppression into the other kind of oppression. We struggle to stay free. And that's the heart of what we see in Exodus chapter 1. We see the story unfolding where the Israelites are being uh, blessed but cursed. They're, they're, they're seeing growth, but they're being oppressed at the same time. It's like in our own hearts, uh, we, we get this experience where it's, it's like one, the, the fullness of blessing can't seem to exist without just a little bit of cursing coming in with it. So um, like you really are successful at something. And the immediate thought in your head is, oh man, now I have to live up to that. Now I have to do that again. You have this incredible opportunity out in front of you, and this little voice in your head says, don't mess it up. Every time this happens, you mess it up. Don't mess it up. You enter into a relationship, a relationship that you've longed for for a long time, and you're so thrilled to be in a relationship, you have this little voice inside that says, it doesn't matter how you're treated. It doesn't matter what he does to you, because you're, you're never going to get another one. This is the best you can get. Blessing mixed with cursing. This is our story. And in the midst of the Exodus story, you see the systems of oppression, the Pharaoh inside all of us that keeps welling up. And this Pharaoh, like Genesis 1, is in the middle of a building project. Look at uh, verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And so uh, Pharaoh is entering into this process of cultivating the earth but in the process of cultivating the earth, he's not doing the Genesis 1 thing, building towards human flourishing. Instead, he's doing the Genesis 3 thing, oppressing people to get what he wants. But even in the middle of that, go to verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. God continues to bless them in the middle of cursing, in the middle of this oppression, God continues to bring flourishing to them. And so we get to the end of this first short section, and what we have is, verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So what we have at the end of verse 14 is the people of God being oppressed by Pharaoh and no mention, as of yet, of God himself. The question the reader should be asking is, where's God in the middle of this? And what in the world is God going to do? This system seems to be too great. So what does God do when faced with brokenness and oppression? What does God do in the midst of our broken lives? Well, the, the short answer is that it's a long answer. It's going to take a year to answer that question. But I, I want to give you four things that God does that uh, become thematic through the book of Exodus. 
So I want to use these 14 verses as a jumping off point to where we're going because God is going to continue to do this work uh, in the people of God. First one is this. God defines the problem. If you are following along, you can see a quick parallel. The Egyptians are oppressing, and that oppression to the Israelites is roughly equivalent to the sin that we face in our lives. You've probably picked this up, right? You understand the the flow of the story, and you're saying, I get the way oppression works. I feel oppression. But see, here's the problem. Um, We tend to define sin far too narrowly. We see sin as behavior that we have done that's wrong, things that we have said that are inappropriate, ways that we have disobeyed God. And please, please hear me, all of those things are sinful. But sin is way bigger than that. Sin, what, what, the, the, what the Exodus is showing us, is sin is a system of oppression that stops us from being able to engage God in the way that we should. What we're, what we're being asked to see in these first couple chapters is that the scope of Egypt's oppression of Israel is the scope of God's redemption of Israel. Get that in your head. So the scope of the oppression is the scope of the redemption. So let me say it another way. If your sin is that you just incessantly have this one behavior that you just continue to do, and it's wrong, and you know it's wrong, and that's the sin. That's, that's sin for you. That's the limit of sin. Or, or sin is the thing that you say that you know you shouldn't say. That's sin. Well, when God redeems you from sin, he's given you a little bit of improvement. You're a slightly better person. Congratulations. But you've missed the scope of the work of God. But if your sin is not simply an activity, an act that you're committing, but rather an entire system that lays on top of you so that you're not capable of worshiping God the way that you're intended to, Now, all of a sudden, when God redeems you from sin, there's a level of freedom that you experience that's totally different. You get redemption in a totally new way. And there's a wordplay happening here in Exodus that we tend to miss in English. So if you look in verse 14, it says this, they made their lives bitter with hard service. That word hard service is the word abad in Hebrew. Can you say abad? Very good. So that word abad is going to show up again in Genesis chapter 3. God is going to be talking to Moses, and he's going to say this. You need to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go so they can go to the wilderness and abad me. Fascinating. Same Hebrew word, one time translated hard service, because Pharaoh is the one who is being abadded, and the other one translated worship, because God is the one being abadded. One service leads to oppression, one service leads to deliverance. See, in, in the writing, what the writer's trying to get us to see is that this system of sin, it's not just causing us to have bad behavior. The system of sin is literally stopping us from being able to worship God. And so it's in redemption that we're able to worship, but we miss the scope of the problem, so we miss the scope of redemption. So that's the first thing. The, the book of Exodus is going to define the problem. The book of Exodus is going to enact the story. This story that's told in the book of Exodus will be told for the first time here and will be told again and again throughout the Old Testament, through the New Testament, all the way through to today. The story goes like this. There's a people who are in bondage. And as that bondage happens, an oppressor is highlighted who is 
actively oppressing those people in bondage, making their situation worse and worse and worse. Out of that oppression, oppression rises up a deliverer. And that deliverer will pass through suffering and difficulty in order to bring deliverance, but at some moment in time, that deliverer will bring liberation, but that liberation will always come through death. There will be some kind of death that must happen because justice and judgment, mishpat, go together. So in order for there to be justice, all wrong things made right, judgment also has to happen. And so out of the death comes liberation, and out of that liberation comes a passageway into the promised land. This is the story. And it's the story that is told again and again and again. This is our story. This is your story. Wherever you're at in that story, this is your story. This is all of our story. And so Exodus is going to lay that story out for us, like in a symphony, you know, in the, the, the first time a melody begins to float out, and you, you capture, oh, this, this is what the symphony is going to be all about. This is the story told for the first time, a story that we'll repeat again and again and again. So Exodus defines the problem and enacts the story. God, through the book of Exodus, shows us what it means to achieve his goal. Um, if you ever, I don't know if you've ever read through the book of Exodus. That would be a worthy thing for you to do this week as you just sit down, start to read through. And what you're going to find is you're going to get through Exodus 20 pretty quick. I mean, you're going to like be, it's all kinds of fascinating stuff, right? You have like, you have slavery and you have Pharaoh and you have frogs and gnats and lice and all kinds of, I mean, it's crazy things. And the Red Sea, Charlton Heston, you know, the whole deal. And then you're going to get to uh, like midway through chapter 20. And I dare you to read the next eight chapters without skimming. I bet you can't do it. Because see, what's going to happen is God's going to start like unpacking all these details and it doesn't make any sense to us. It's basically, he's describing this really ornate tent. He's like, now when you go, make a really cool tent. That tent is called the tabernacle. Some of, that, uh, some, some of you understand that word. That word literally means God is going to dwell with his people. See, the reason why there's all of this detail in the mid-20s of the chapters of Exodus is because God is intent on being with his people. And the tabernacle, as this, um, this glorified tent, is the temporary dwelling place of God. So every time they move, the tabernacle moves with them because God is going with them, because the heart of God is to be with his people. The heart of God is that he would be present with them. And so all the way through their wanderness wanderings, their wilderness wanderings, there we go, um, God's coming with the tabernacle. But when they finally get to the promised land and they conquer all the enemies and they're there in peace, the tabernacle gives way to the temple. And the temple is the brick and mortar place, the permanent structure where God dwells among his people because the heart of God is to be among his people. The heart of God is to dwell with them. But if you know the story... After several generations, Ezekiel sees this vision where the Spirit of God lifts up from the temple and disappears, goes away. The temple is now just a building. It doesn't inhabit, it's not inhabited by the presence of God. And a little bit later, the enemies of the people of God come in and they destroy the entire city, including the temple. And for several hundred years, God does not dwell with his people. And then in John chapter 1, this fascinating thing is said. As John describes Jesus coming to earth, the second person in the Trinity coming to be with his people, he says this, and he made his dwelling among us. And that word, some of you know, 
is the word for tabernacle. God shows up to be among his people, to be with his people in a temporary kind of way. He tabernacles among his people for a while, and you may say, well, what, what about the temple? Then what, what happens? Well, Jesus calls his disciples around him in this, uh, uh, in this thing that we now call the Last Supper, and he has this conversation with them. And, and one of the things he says to them, among many, one of the things he says is, I'm going to leave. This was always intended to be a tabernacle. I, I, this was never intended to be a permanent. This was a tent. I'm going to leave. And I'm going to send another comforter to you, and he will be with you forever. And Paul, a couple decades later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, says, don't you know you are the temple of the Spirit? You, you are the permanent dwelling place of God. God among his people. But that, that verse, that concept, is embedded in 1 Corinthians 6 in the middle of Paul talking about what it means to honor God with your entire body, with your life. It's a worship passage. Because what Paul's saying and what Exodus is saying is that the goal of God, get this, is not freedom from captivity. The goal of God is far greater than simply freeing slaves. Yes, he's going to free slaves along the way, but God's goal is not to free slaves in our understanding of freedom. This great fallacy that we have is that somehow if we're freed, we can just do whatever we want to do, then we'll be good. You will immediately end up in slavery, just another kind of slavery. That's the way it works. You, Bob Dylan said it. You should have listened. Got to serve somebody, right? That's what Bob Dylan said back in the day. You're going to serve somebody. What God is showing us is that not, his goal is not simply to release slaves, but his goal is to reclaim worshipers, that we would be people who truly worship him. One commentary on uh, Exodus makes, it, makes this statement. Only in service to God can service without bondage be found. The exodus does not constitute a declaration of independence, but a declaration of dependence on God. The goal of God for the people of God is that he would dwell with them and they would worship him. That we would be people who don't cease to become slaves but rather cease to become slaves to an evil, oppressive slave master. Instead, our devotion is to the benevolent God of the universe, the only being in the universe, by the way, who doesn't change when we worship him. He is perfect, and so when we worship him, he remains perfect. The goal of God is that we would be reclaimed as worshipers. And then finally, Exodus shows us the process that God's going to use. God's going to follow a process um, th there's a pastor in San Francisco by the name of Dave Lomas, and uh, he uh, spoke this comment, uh, this, this idea out of the book of Revelation uh, a long time ago, and it's just stuck with me. Uh, some of you know from Revelation 21, uh, the, the way that God describes his work is that he's making all things new. And what Lomas said that really struck with me, stuck with me is that God's making all things new. He's not making all new things. Now, think about that for a minute, because making all things new is a long process. It's drawn out over a period of time. Making all new things, boom, new things, right? Like, the, the restoration process, that's a long process that takes a lot of time. And what will happen in the restoration process is things are going to look uglier way before they look better, right? That process, um, you, have to, you have to get to really broken down before you start to build back up again. 
But making new things? Oh man, that's easy. There's this great discussion that happens. The, the people of God will be leaving through the Exodus and they begin to complain. This is going to be a common thing you're going to hear a lot in the next year. They complain a lot. And they're complaining to Moses. And Moses says to God, hey God, can we just, let's just make a new people. Like these people are a pain in the butt. Like I don't like, the, I'm paraphrasing, but it's close. Like, I don't like these people. Can we just make new people? And God says to Moses, Moses, that's not how I work. I'm making all things new. I'm not making new things. But then like 15 chapters later, the people disobey again, and God comes to Moses. It's so great. He comes to Moses and he says, can we just destroy all these people? I just make a new people out of you. Let's just start over again. I'll just start with you. And Moses says to God, God, that's not how we work, (laughs) right? It's so great. We're making all things new, remember? There's a process that God's engaging And we're going to see this process throughout the book of Exodus. And the way it shows up in our lives right now is that you and I often find ourselves in that verse 14 kind of place. Like, I feel oppression. I feel brokenness. I don't see how all of this works together. And I don't see God. Haven't seen him around. I don't know what he's doing. And yet, God is in the process of making all things new. We can trust because this story is our story that God's working. We're going to look at it next week, but just imagine, um, we're going to look next week at the story of baby Moses being put into a basket and floated down the river. There were several women who were courageously obedient to God by saving baby Moses. There were several other people that by um, a happy coincidence or the providence of God showed up on the other side of that basket and ended up bringing Moses out of the river and raising Moses. But think about it. They're enslaved at that point in the midst of their obedience. They're being oppressed ruthlessly by Pharaoh. Moses is saved. He goes into the Pharaoh's palace. They stay enslaved. For 40 years he lives. They're still in slavery. Then after 40 years, Moses runs away. They're still in slavery. By the time Moses, some 80 years later, comes back and goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, those people who obeyed are likely not even around anymore. They never saw the fruition of what they had done. They were just obedient. And in the midst of that obedience, they were trusting that the God of the universe is working and he's able, but he didn't seem to show up in the middle of it. It wasn't until 80 years later that God shows up in the burning bush and he says, I've heard the cries of my people. And the people, if they had been there with Moses, had to have been saying, we've been crying for a long time. <laughs> like, why, why now? And the answer is because God is making all things new. He's not making all new things. He's not doing it in an instant. There's a process that's being unfolded around us. And so for you and I, in the midst of... A, a bunch of stuff that we can't get in our own lives and in the world around us, in a a broken culture and in the midst of broken families, in the midst of brokenness inside of us. The assurance that we have is that God is making all things new. He's doing something. He's in a process. And so Jesus, thousands of years later, says to his disciples, this story is our story. The words actually do matter. And he says that 
by interestingly sitting around a table with them and enacting a Seder meal. I imagine the youngest disciple read the four questions or recited them. And I imagine they all together stated, we were slaves in Egypt. This story is our story. The words actually do matter. But in that retelling of the story, as Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And as he held up the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant given out for many. Jesus was not saying, this is kind of like the Exodus story. Jesus was not saying, this thing that I'm about to do, it's kind of like when the Passover lamb was killed. It's kind of like that. He wasn't saying what you're about to receive is kind of like the Israelite people being freed. Rather, what Jesus was saying is, this is the story that story was pointing to. This is the greater story. Jesus was making the, the, the very clear claim that he was not in the line of Moses, he was the greater Moses. That he was not freeing people like Moses did, but Moses had freed people in a way that was to prefigure what he would do for eternity. It's kind of like if that symphony began and that melody began to uh, be played in Exodus, that melody shows up again uh, in the rest of the Old Testament. You hear the melody in the prophets. You hear the melody through the Psalms. You hear the melody through all of the different wisdom literature, and the melody kind of quiets down. And then as Jesus comes in through the Gospels, that melody starts to resurface. And as Jesus is sitting around, there's this crescendo and all of, the, uh, all of the instruments together are playing this melody. This is the point of the symphony. This is why that story exists. And so on this side of it, as we come back to the table and as we take the bread and we take the cup, we recognize that Jesus was not just continuing the Passover. He was fulfilling the Passover. But what's fascinating is that he didn't finish the Passover. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says to his disciples as he holds up the cup, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the Father's kingdom. Jesus is on a several thousand year abstinence run as he waits because one day he will drink of the fruit of the vine with you and with me. We will be with him and then the Passover will not just be fulfilled, it will be finished. Until then, we anticipate that. So every time we come back to the table, we're retelling the story again. We were slaves in Egypt. We were in need of redemption and a redeemer came and after suffering and difficulty and in the midst of death, we were given freedom and let into the promised land. We've been invited in. And one day we will fully be there. And so I want to invite you to come with that heart to celebrate, to remember. To take the bread and remember, yes, Jesus' body broken for you. Jesus' blood poured out as forgiveness for many, for you. And that he's in the middle of a restoration process. You may not see it all now. All the details may be lost, not just to you now, but maybe to you in your lifetime. But God is doing something. We know he's doing something because this story, this Exodus story, is our story. Because the words actually do matter. And if we 
begin to continue to tell the story to one another, we can, with eyes of faith, say, he's working. I know he's working. I see him in the middle of this, even though it's not working together the way that I would think, the way that I would like. I know that he is doing a good restoration work. He's making all things new.